Praise the Lord, church. Has anyone gotten up out of that grave? Church, do you know what separates us from the world? I'll tell you one of the main things that separates us from the world is not that we are perfect. It's not that we don't sin like the world sins. It's that when we sin and when we fall, we get back up. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times. The righteousness is not in the falling, but it's what comes after the falling. A righteous man falls seven times, but gets back up. This couldn't be a better introduction into what I want to talk to you guys tonight. So as you guys are seated, I'll go ahead and dismiss for our children, for our youth. You can be dismissed. As they're being dismissed, if everyone wants to turn in their Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And let me just preface this message. Because, you know, there are times, and I, I would dare say that there are any, any person who gets up to teach or preach, there are times when we don't always feel the most adequate to give the message that God has given us. There are times that I look back at my own life and I'm like, God, I, I have my own struggles, my own issues, my own times of doubt and disbelief. But the great thing is, is that the word of God and its authority is not predicated on me. It's not dictated by my perfection or lack thereof. But the word of God is perfect in and of itself. So let's pick up in Joshua 24. So this month we've been reading through uh, Ruth, ju uh, Judges, and Esther. So we're going to be talking about Judges tonight, the first two chapters of the book of Judges. But I need to give you a little background before we get into Judges. Why did they have Judges? Why did God ever appoint Judges in the first place? We kind of need to know just a little bit of the backstory to this. So we're going to read in Joshua chapter 24. And, and he does a good job of recapping where they were and where they are. So starting in verse 1, it says, And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau, and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them. And afterward I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and ye came unto the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after you, after your fathers, with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. And ye dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, that ye might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. 
Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan and came unto Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornets before you, which drave them out before, from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword nor with thy bow. Okay, so that was a whole lot. What just happened here? This is a story that they would have already known. Joshua was not telling them anything they didn't already know. During that time, oral tradition and oral storytelling was something that was paramount. It was key. So these stories have been told generation after generation after generation. These, these children of Israel, they knew. They knew the stories of how Abraham was called out from among the people, how he was promised uh, a, a, a seed as great as the stars and greater the sands of the sea. He, they knew all of this. But the reason that Joshua is doing this, and really God speaking through Joshua to do this, is to say, you know all of that I've done for you. You've seen all the many miracles that I've wrought before you. But then he has a little bit of a warning for them. So he kind of picks back up here in verse 13, and he's going to really start to tell them what's happening here. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not. And ye dwell in them, of the vineyards and olive yards, which ye planted, and do not eat. Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Pause. We've read that verse so many times in church. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. While Joshua was making a declaration about his being sold out to God, he was really letting the people know, listen, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that you are children of God, that you are called out by God, and yet you are doing what your fathers did before you in Egypt, and that is to take the, the false idols of the world and try to mix it into the religion that God has called you to. You can't have it both ways. Choose you this day. He's saying you need to make up in your mind what you're going to actually do. Are you going to really serve God? Are you really going to live for him? Or are you going to live a life of continued compromise? So now the people hearing this, they heard all the miracles. They heard all the things. They've just been delivered from all these battles. So they respond how most of us would likely respond. Verse 16, and the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, and from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sights, and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. They're like, yeah, God forbid that we would, we would do that stuff. Of course we're going to serve God, because he did all these miracles for us. You see, the book of Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament is a type and shadow of what is to come. 
the Old Testament is often a physical fulfillment of what is talked about and mentioned as in the spiritual context in the New Testament. So this opening line that I read in verse 13 where it says, And I have given you a land for which you did not labor, cities which you built not, and dwelled in them, of the vineyards and olive yards which you planted, you eat of. Right? This is so powerful because it points to what Jesus would say when he told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. Now this place had little to nothing to do with physical mansions, but he was saying that he was going to make a way for man to be with him in eternity. In other words, man was incapable of preparing the place because of their sins. Just like the children of Israel had continued to make mistake after mistake, they were physically incapable of doing the things that needed to be done. They could not bring the plagues on Egypt to have themselves delivered. They could not have parted the Red Sea. They could not have caused that Red Sea to then crush the Egyptians that were pursuing after them. They could not have done those things on their own, but God did it on their behalf. Just like for us, we cannot prepare a way, a place for us to go to. God had to do that. Now, I find it also kind of interesting that it not only mentions the, the, the land and the cities, but then it goes on to mention the olives that I also given you olives of the olive yard that you eat of. Olives, especially within the New Testament, the oil of olives was what was used often for anointing. Right? So God was saying, not only have I prepared a place for you, but I provided an anointing for you as well. Now, when Joshua, or, or, so Jesus would give them a promise that, for which they did not labor, labor. But the second major theme that is being referenced here is the fact that this promised land that they were, were, were given would only be attained after the people were delivered from Egypt. We know that Egypt represents the spiritual bondage of sin. The children of God could not inherit the promise as long as they were slaves to their sin. So this simply takes me to my title. The slippery slope of sin. The slippery slope of sin. You see, when Joshua throws down the gauntlet by saying, Choose you this day who you will serve, we read that the people responded, and the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for the Lord our God, He it is that brought us up. See, they knew, they recognized in, the, in their statement that it was God that brought them up and, and our fathers out of the land of Egypt. From the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in her sight, and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among the people through whom we passed. But Joshua knows the history of Israel. He knows their constant struggle of always going back into their sinful ways. So he doesn't just let their statement lay how it is. In verse 19, listen what he then responds by saying, And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, and he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he hath done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, I heard you say that you recognize God did all of these things for us. I heard you say that we would... God forbid that we would turn from, from God and that we would do those things. But Joshua says, listen, if you decide after this warning, if you decide to still 
perverse your faith and turn back to the other gods, to turn back to strange gods and decide to follow after them, then do not be surprised when God forsakes you, when God leaves you in that sin. I'm going somewhere with this. Just stay with me. Now let's turn over to Judges. Judges chapter 1. And I'm going to skip around just a little bit because for the sake of time, I don't want to read all of these verses. But let's start in in verse 1 of chapter 1. So we saw Joshua throw down this gauntlet. We, We heard Joshua's warning. And now we start off this story in Judges with the death of Joshua. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Now let me just preface... Let me say this, Judah here is not talking about the man Judah. That man has been long dead and gone. We're talking about the tribe of Judah. So we hear these references to names, they're referring to their tribe. Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now why did God appoint Judah and not one of the other tribes? Now I could give you a couple theories, but let me simply say this. God knows the end from the beginning, and just as important, he also knows the heart of man. And we'll see in just a minute why God chose Judah. Verse 17 says, And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. And the name of the city was called Hormah. And uh, Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ascalon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, as Moses said. And he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. The children of Israel knew. If you go back and read a lot of Joshua and even further back than that, the children of Israel knew when they were to take a city, they were not to leave any inhabitants of that city. Because what happened over and over and over again is when they left inhabitants behind, they ended up compromising and starting to follow after the false idols and the false gods of the people around them. So they had been instructed time after time. They knew that when God told them to go and take a city, they were to drive out all of the heathen, if you will, all of the world from that city and take it as the promise that God had given them. And we see Judah does this. He is, and here's a key word, obedient. He is obedient to what he is told to do. They were not to adopt their false gods. They were to serve God alone and not cohabitate with the world. Let me make it a little more plain. They were told by Joshua to choose God or the world. You cannot live for God without driving out the world. Judah was obedient, but unfortunately, most of the other tribes were not. Verse 21 of chapter 1. I'm not going to read all of the, I'm going to read little bits of these just to kind of paint a picture. It says, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean, uh, nor the inhabitants of Ibliam and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns. But the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Verse 28, And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. These are the same people that promised Joshua. They told Joshua with all sincerity, at least it seemed, 
that they would be obedient to God's command. But instead, they decided to compromise. They decided to alter God's plan for what seemed better or seemed right to them. They wanted the benefits of the promise without the sacrifice of driving out the world. Or you could say that they wanted religion without relationship. Does this sound familiar? We have preachers today saying that serving God won't cost you anything. I actually heard, a, a, I could not believe I actually heard this, and I actually heard this from more than one person. I heard a preacher say that God, that Jesus did not die for our sins. That he did die on a cross, but he was murdered there, and that he didn't actually have to die for our sins. That wasn't necessary. Why? I also heard another preacher say that if Jesus was alive today, that he would be an ally to the LGBTQ communication, or community, and that he would support same-sex marriage. He would support uh, all these different things that the Bible very clearly says is wrong. Why? Because the world, and many who profess to be Christians, they want religion, but they don't want true relationship with God. They want the promises of God, but they don't want to sacrifice anything in return. But what I want, to, want you to see, what, what Judah did here, was he was obedient. Church, sometimes in our walk with God, we don't always understand why God is asking us to do something. We don't always understand why God is asking us to break off a relationship with someone. We don't always understand why God is saying, no, that's not the right door for you to walk through. And it's very frustrating in our flesh because we think we know, God, that's, that's the perfect solution. That'll fix all my problems if I do X, Y, or Z. And God is saying, no, just be obedient. But instead, we decide that we can compromise. We can say, okay, God, I'll do all this stuff over here, but I'm still going to make my own choices because I, I know what's right. I know what I, sh what, what I can do to fix this problem. We all do it at moments in our lives. I wish I had time to tell you about all of the other crazy teachings that I've, I've been hearing about lately. And sometimes when I am preparing for a message, I'll, I'll get on YouTube and I'll, I'll just start looking at the craziness that's out there. Just, just to get a sense of, of what this world is, is teaching in churches. And, and it breaks my heart. Because the church of God should be a church that's united. Not a church divided. But instead, we divide ourselves because we alter the word of God. Jesus didn't uh, uh, just said that Jesus didn't actually die for our sins, according to some. This is the result of mixing the world's idea of morality with God's absolute holiness. But I digress. Let's go on to chapter 2, because I, I could stay just on that one thing for the rest of the night. Now, as you get into chapter 2, it can seem a little confusing at first, if you don't understand the writing style being used here. In chapter 1, we open with the death of Joshua. But in verses 7 through 8 of chapter 2, we see Joshua's death recorded again. We see this exact same type of thing happen in Genesis chapter 2 and also in Revelation chapter 12. The reason that this is done is because the writer is about to focus on a very specific detail that requires a little bit of context, or a little bit of backstory. So, for example... In Genesis chapter 2, we see the account of man being created again. Man wasn't created a second time, but God is telling a very specific story starting with the creation of man so that he can then explain further 
the purpose of man. In Revelation 12, we start off, and I'm not going to go into a whole story here, but in Revelation 12, we start off with a story of, of Jesus being born. He wasn't born again in Revelation 12, but there needed to be a backstory so you would understand why the next set of events happened. So this is what we find here in, in the second chapter of Judges. It'll make sense as we read the verses. Verse 1 says, And an angel of the Lord came up to Gilgal, to Bacham, and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? See, first it was Joshua speaking on behalf of God. They refused to listen to Joshua, so now an angel of the Lord, most would call a theophany, meaning a physical representation of God, comes down and speaks directly to them. And he asks them, why? Why have you done this? Verse 3 says, Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. What happens when you don't drive out the world? What happens when you continue to allow the world and God to try to coexist within your life is that the, the world and the false idols of this world become a trap for you. And you often don't even realize that you are again and again and again falling into that trap over and over and over again. And this is what happened to Israel. If you read throughout much of Israel's history why they kept cycling back through the same sins, it's because they never fully got rid of the world. They never got rid of the idols and the false worship and the false gods. And so those false gods continually were a trap for them. They continually kept falling back into that over and over and over again. The generation that observed the miracles were able to hold on to those memories despite the presence of the enemy. So let's look at verse 7 now. It says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Tim, Timnatharis, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gesh. So, he didn't die again, but there's a very important reason why this is mentioned. What, what the writer here is wanting us to know is that the generation that was alive with Joshua, the ones who physically saw the miracles of God were able to hold on just enough to keep serving God. Right? They, were, they were able to hold on because they had witnessed the miracles, despite the presence of the enemy. But you see, the slippery slope of sin is one that is insidious. Insidious here just simply means sneaky. It creeps up on you sometimes. Sometimes you don't recognize that it's happening until it's a little too late. What I mean is that there are times that we make a bad decision, but we don't always see the consequence of that bad decision right away. And because of this, we begin to think that maybe our choices really weren't that bad after all. Have you ever done that? Have you ever made a poor choice and there were no real consequences? So you're like, well, I guess it really wasn't that bad. I mean, nothing happened, so I, I could probably do that again. It's, it's not a big deal. Nothing happened. And then you make it again and again and to the point where you're numb 
and you no longer even recognize it as a bad decision. And then you make an even worse decision and a worse decision. Even worse, we begin to justify our poor choices and we then model this life of compromise to our children. Let that, let that sink in for a moment. When we live a life of compromise, but we've at least seen God do all these things in our lives. We've seen God do all of this stuff. But for whatever reason, we have something in the world that we refuse to drive out. Then we begin to live a life of compromise. Unbeknowingly, we model that life of compromise for our children who haven't seen God do all of those things yet. Who haven't seen God intervene in the way that we saw him intervene within our life. And this is where we get to verse 10. And also all that generations or generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord, of, Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord unto anger." And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemy round about so that they could no longer stand before their enemy. Just for a moment, put yourself in this situation. You live a life of compromise. But you've seen enough miracles that you're able to at least hold on throughout your life. But you model that life of compromise for your children. Then you die. And maybe not your children, but maybe their children at this point. Completely turn away from God. Completely begin to serve the world wholeheartedly. Because of one life of compromise. See, this is the slippery slope of sin. It's not always one day you just decide, you know what, I'm not going to live for God anymore. I'm just going to go do my own thing. That's not how, if you want to use the term we, we use in church, backsliding really works. Backsliding works one poor choice at a time. One choice to live in compromise leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And before you realize it, you're so far off the path that you don't even recognize where you are anymore. When you live a life of compromise, it will inevitably give birth to a life of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy, continually reaches for us. Verse 16 says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. So you wanted to know why we needed judges, why judges existed? Here. Here is the reason that judges were, were brought up. Which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods, and bowed themselves unto them. And turn, they turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge, and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them, they ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. 
So what that just said is that when God would raise up a judge, and he was with that judge, the people would say, yay, we have a deliverer. And they would turn back toward God. But then as soon as that judge would die, they would immediately turn back to the world again. I find it interesting that the people would turn back toward God during the life of a judge, but then immediately go back to their sin. I believe that this is simply because of this. They did not follow God out of obedience, but rather out of the wonder for the miracles and signs. They sought for what God could do for them and not out of obedience for who God is. They were still living a life of compromise. They only served God when they could see the visible signs of his hand moving in their lives. But in the moments of silence, they immediately went back to their wickedness. Now remember toward the beginning of this message, I mentioned that Judah was chosen to lead the people after Joshua's death. This message is not meant, I'm not trying to come here and, and tell you that you're all disobedient people and you're all living a life of sin and you're all doing these things. That's, that's not what I'm doing. But what I want to do is I want, I want to paint a picture here of, of the two choices that are being made within this book. So you have the, the first choice that I just spoke of, which is the rest of the children, the rest of the, those who chose not to be obedient, those who chose not to drive out the world and instead went after their own ways and what that brought them. But Judah, the tribe of Judah, did choose to be obedient. They did choose to listen to what God told them to do. Earlier I explained that a life of compromise from the other tribes gave birth to disobedience. But the inverse to that is this. Judah's life of obedience is what gave birth to King David. David, of course, was known as a man after God's own heart. He was loved, uh, he was loved for his life of worshiped, worship. From that life of worship was born Solomon, who was known as the wisest man in the Bible. Many generations later would come the culmination in the birth of Jesus, who not only brought our salvation, but has provided us with the ability for sanctification. You ready? We must first have a heart that is obedient to Scripture. Out of that obedience and through time, even in times of silence, it will create a heart of gratitude. Or you could say that obedience leads to a heart of worship. Worship allows us to keep a right perspective of who God is and who we are. A life of worship will then lead to making choices that are pleasing to God. We call this wisdom. And as we make these choices, our lives will become more and more like Christ. And we simply call this sanctification. Obedience leads to worship, which leads to wisdom, which leads to sanctification. The problem is, is that so many times we want the sanctification, we want the immediate change without being obedient first. The reason obedience has to be the first step is because you have to realize you are not God. You don't know the end. You don't know the whys of everything. But God does. Obedience is me saying, God, I don't understand why you want me to do this or why you don't want me to do that. But I will be obedient because you are God. And the more I'm obedient to God, I see what happens. I see the outcomes of those things. And I get a perspective of who God is. Wow, God, you really did know what you're talking about. Wow, God, you really were able to work this out. 
You really were able to provide for me when I thought there was no way. So then I have a heart of worship, a heart that's grateful for who God is. And the more I love God, the more I want to do things that are pleasing. This is wisdom. This is me recognizing that, God, my choices should not be based on just, is this sin? But is this wise? Is this pleasing unto you? That is the heart of wisdom. Interestingly, did you know that in the Hebrew, the word wisdom was the word hukmah? And it was more than just a, 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 a smart or a knowledge of something, but it was something that they believed that literally innervated all of life. That when you acted in a right way, you were exercising the spirit, if you will, of wisdom. It was an attribute of God that you were connecting to, allowing God to flow through you. Having wisdom is more than just choices, but being more like God himself. So in that heart of worship, we become more and more like him, which is what sanctification is all about. So tonight, I, I want to ask you something. Is there anything within your life, we can all stand. I know it's 741, we still got a few minutes. But I, I want to take just a few minutes for us to have a time to examine ourselves. In, in this spectrum, if you will, of obedience and worship and sanctification, in this kind of spectrum here, are there things in your life that you need to work on? Is there any areas within your own life that God is saying, listen, you, you are doing great. There's still that one thing that you're trying to hold on to. You're trying to do it your way. And I'm trying to get you to be obedient. Because when you're obedient, you avoid the slippery slope of sin. Now, the very outset of this message, that, that opening song couldn't have been any better. I said that what distinguished a righteous man from the world was that he got back up. Judah, the tribe of Judah, they made their own mistakes. They sinned. David sinned a lot. Right? Solomon sinned a lot. But their sin is not what defined them. Their sin, or their, what defined them, was their obedience to always turning back. David was a man after God's own heart, not because of his sin, but because he always kind of came back to God and said, God, I recognize my mistakes. I recognize that I messed up. And you are a perfect God. Help me. Forgive me. So tonight, in recognizing that we need obedience, it's not you saying that, man, I'm a horrible person because I've sinned, but it's, it is saying that, God, I want to give it all, everything, every aspect of my life. So if we could just take a few minutes and pray. Media team, if you have any music you could play softly in the background, that would be fantastic. Find a place to pray and truly examine yourself and ask, what areas do I need to be obedient in my life? Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, oh God, examine me. Create in me, O oh God, a clean heart. God, anything that is not like you, take it away, O oh God. Because in these times ahead, Lord, I cannot be half in and half out, O oh God. In this, in this world that is constantly jumping off the edge of the cliff of sin, O oh God. I cannot stand firm on your word if I'm trying to live both in the world and in your word. Help us, O oh God, to be firm in who you are. Help us, O oh God, to be firm in our decision, O oh God, to put away the sins of this world. Put away the things of this world, O oh God. Our morality does not come from the world, from Facebook, from social media. It does not come from advocacy groups. It does not come from, from people or talking heads on the news. Our, our morality is already set, and it's absolute, because it comes from you, O oh God. 
We are called to be holy because you are holy. Your holiness is perfect in all its ways. Help us to be holy like you are holy, Jesus. Oh God, help us to have the humility, oh God, to admit our mistakes. Help us to have humility, oh God, to recognize that we are not perfect and that we all have sinned, that we all make mistakes, but we all need your grace, your forgiveness, oh God. Oh Lord, you said you were close to them that are of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, Lord. I want your presence to be close to me, oh God. Therefore, I'm asking, let me maintain a spirit of brokenness, a spirit of humility, oh God. A spirit that recognizes that I am weak without you. I am nothing without you. As Paul said, I must decrease that you might increase, oh God. Examine us. Examine us. Oh God, search our hearts. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord.